how does insurance float work? So, so insurance float works like this. You are an insurance company. And if I'm going to insure your car, for example, you're going to pay me an upfront premium for the year, right? Or, or for example, I don't know if we want to include this in the video, but I just insured my Rolexes, right? With state farm. And did you actually, for, yeah, yeah. So for the year I paid, you know, a little less than 500 bucks. Why state farm, by the way, it was the best price. Okay. Good coverage yeah. for roll, for luxury goods and items. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Geico has a subsidiary as well, um, but their pricing was crazy. Well, we're making a whole thing about Geico right now. So it's like you right? want the wrong provider. But yeah, no, so I forget what Geico's insurance, uh, jewelry insurance subsidiary is, but yeah, they're, they're the, probably the biggest, one of the biggest names. Um, and then my, like my renter's insurance policy said, Oh, the val <laughs> items are too valuable. So, so what's the, what's a premium? Yeah. So the premium is the, what the insuree person who wants to be insured pays up front for that insurance. So they pay up front over, like, is it what they would owe over the course of say a year or a month or what's that, what's that uh, premium? What, what time frame does it cover? It's typically most insurance is a year. So you pay a year premium to be covered in advance for the whole year in advance of the whole year. And then, and then there's more complex forms of insurance that especially Berkshire plays in. Uh, for example, they do uh, something called super catastrophe insurance or essentially reinsurance where they actually insure insurance companies. Right. So if, if I'm an insurance company and I'm insuring a portfolio of properties against flooding, but if my aggregate risk hits above 10 billion, I'm going to go to Berkshire and get that reinsured. And because, because Berkshire is the only company in the world big enough to take on such a single concentrated risk. And so they're, they're playing in big insurance like that. And if you think about it, those- And then you have somebody who can insure Berkshire or does it just stop there? <laughs> it's, it stops with Berkshire. So many, many insurance companies, they, um, I forget the, the term, but they, you know, essentially- take some of the risk off their balance sheet and they'll, you know, sell some of that insurance off, but Berkshire keeps all the risk on their own balance sheet. And that's what gives them that competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. The other thing about Supercat is it's really long range because if I, if I'm Berkshire and I insure, you know, the probability of a hurt of a, of a hurricane happening in Florida and an earthquake happening in California at the same time, right? That might not happen for 20 years. So I might just be able to collect premiums and premiums year after year. And that's my float. So I collect, millions and millions of dollars of premiums that maybe I eventually have to pay out in claims. But in the meantime, I have that money and I can invest it, which that's what Berkshire does. They buy stocks and companies and that's how they're able to compound the float, which essentially allows them to borrow money for free because if both their insurance business is profitable and they make good investments, then they've just borrowed the money for free. So what about like a life insurance company, right? Where they're insuring something that may not happen for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years, they have a lot of time to play with that money essentially. And eventually the person, you know, loses their life. And based on some calculation, they actually probably can pretty accurately predict how old you're going to be when you die based on a number of factors you're insured, you know, according to that. And then just like Berkshire, do they play with the money in the same way? In the meantime, they put it in the stock market, they put it in index funds, they, they create a portfolio. So they take the money upfront that they'll pay out in 20 years, but you know, what you're losing as the customer is you don't get to invest that money. You, you give it up, you're paying it. And in the meantime, you've got this company holding it and investing it on yeah, your behalf, exactly. but not giving you any of the cut. Right. Yeah. And one of the major players in real estate debt is actually insurance companies. So 
they play a, a major role. It, some of the, you know, class A nicest properties that you see, their debt is from insurance companies. And that's because, like you said, they've got this long range that they need to do something with the money. And so their their return criteria is quite low. So they're able to be competitive in the real estate debt market, loan money at very conservative terms, but it works for them because they're they're that long range investor in the market. Mm-hmm. So insurance has been an interesting sort of go-to-market strategy for a lot of startups. Not I wouldn't say a lot. There's there's sort of a niche of strat of, of startups. There's a niche of startups that look at insurance as a go-to-market. And what I mean by that is take Mira, for example, right? Uh, we provide a hardware device and software that makes the job of a frontline worker safer. It ensures that they're doing the job correctly. It's documenting using the camera that they're doing the things that they say that they're doing. And eventually it'll use machine learning to detect when they're doing things incorrectly and help them fix those mistakes immediately, right? So you've got some companies that are using Mira, right? They're using the sophisticated digital technology to ensure that these very risky processes that are all insured, right? Uh, You have these like highly industrial environments that are, that are certainly insured. Some companies are using technologies like Mira in those environments and other companies are using pen and paper for those same environments, right? So you can imagine the discrepancy in really what those two customers should be paying from an insurance perspective. And basically the bottom line, the, the lowest common denominator that everyone is getting charged for is based on everyone using pen and paper. That's what the, the risks are sort of modeled from. So you have this new kind of flavor of, uh, go to market from these tech startups that are going to these insurance companies and saying, hey, well, you know, uh, get your customers to use Mira and give them a discount on their insurance premium. And then like that, and then we'll take some of the shared savings or whatever the business model is. Someone, someone's winning, someone's saving money, right? It's the same sort of thing that a company like Fitbit is even trying to do at a really long scale, which is going through employers to actually give those employees Fitbits and based on if their habits are healthier, it's encouraging preventative medicine. And so their insurance premiums will go down and then there's a shared savings model. So it's interesting what tech startups are doing to approach that kind of go-to-market with all of this insurance. Interesting. Yeah. So cost disintermediation and all that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so what we have, uh, you know, what we've talked about a little bit is the Berkshire stuff, um, which, you know, we've mentioned already talking about Berkshire Hathaway for those that aren't familiar, that's, Warren Buffett's investment vehicle that he's taken from essentially zero to one of the largest companies in the world, which is just a conglomerate of companies. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And so you and I just did did a little bit of reading and we had some discussions uh, that relate to our own businesses and, and just some interesting insights to share. So let's set the stage. Why don't you kind of walk through the, cause it's fresh in our minds. Why don't you walk through kind of the Berkshire model and how, you know, they're shipping cash back to headquarters and, and what, what their strategy is. Sure. So Berkshire Hathaway, you think of it like a fund in some ways, but really they started just as a, as a plain old company. They started with a company with shareholders and uh, you know a cap table, and it's just a company. And it started with $10 million on the balance sheet. And they basically figured out, you know, we've got $10 million in our bank account. What do we do to multiply this money? And the thing that they really started to do was finding profitable businesses that were typically started and still run by the same founder. And they would buy those companies out and nothing would change about the operations of that company. They wouldn't, you know, bring a new management. They wouldn't touch anything. The only difference is that the profit that that company was making now flows back to Berkshire Hathaway. 
So they buy these companies that are profitable. The founder loves running them. They figure out these great incentive systems to keep those founders in place with compensation bonuses and all these things, just so they don't have to touch anything. The profit flows back to HQ. They take that profit and they reinvest it in more businesses. They get diversified. They start buying, you know, tech stocks and like Apple or stocks like Coca-Cola. They buy more businesses, more businesses, Dairy Queen, Geico, and it just kind of goes on and on. Yeah, that's that's a, a great explanation. So in and like you said, the really interesting point, which is so different than kind of the go-go mentality of Wall Street, is investors, especially on the private equity side, are always looking for ways to add value. And they, they, they want to buy a company, they want to oust the CEO and replace the board members and and you know, new management, new ideas, um, follow-on acquisitions, mergers. And you know, Berkshire has the exact opposite strategy. They want to buy something that's great and then they just want to sit back and do nothing. And it's obviously worked out really well for them. And I think there's something to be said. I mean, sure, sure. There are some times and there are strategies to go in there kind of like in our business where we find an underperforming real estate asset. And then, you know, we've been very successful with renovating the apartments, getting higher rents, increasing occupancy, and that leads to real value creation. But other times you can find an asset or a company that's well-performing in place and it really does all the work for you. And so that's what has really allowed them to grow so much in their large size, because something that is, is said in our, in our reading that when they first started out and actually when Warren started out, he was investing under the, his uh, teacher, Benjamin Graham at Columbia. And he taught basically cigar butt investing where you just go and find a company that's on its last legs and it's about to, you know, be, be a dead company. And then you just pick it up puff its last little puff of cash flow, and then that's it. But you buy it for so cheap, so it doesn't matter. And so Warren was doing really well with that. But as you can imagine, those opportunities are very small. And the capital that you can put into those is very small. And you know, essentially, his partner, Charlie Munger, said, hey, if you want to make it big and you want to do this with billions of dollars, you need to actually, you know, instead of trying to buy bad companies at a great price, let's buy great companies at a fair price and then let them ride forever. Hmm. Sequoia has a, a term, a specific term for those types of companies. It's they, they call them enduring companies, companies that endure. I think it's a powerful one, an, an enduring company. It's not one that, you know, is flipped for cash. It's not one that, it, you know, is about to die with one more puff in the cigar. It's, it's an enduring company. It's created enduring value in the world. That's not going anywhere. And it's an enduring company that has been structured and that's here to stay. And you look at some of the biggest companies they've ever invested in, they've endured. It's Cisco, it's Google, it's EA, it's Apple, it's Airbnb, it's DoorDash. These aren't, you know, cigar puff companies. These are enduring, lasting companies. So I think Charlie Munger sort of hit it on the head with Warren in saying, hey, like maybe rather than kind of looking for the scraps and finding this incremental value that we can kind of, you know, pull some cash out of, what if we invest in companies that are here to stay, the ones that are enduring? Right. And like I said, investable strategy when you've got large pools of capital. The other really interesting thing that's super unique about Berkshire is really their, their corporate structure. Like you said, they've got 19 employees at headquarters, yet they have nearly 250,000 employees. And so essentially they have, you know, here it says they have no human resources, purchasing, marketing, legal, or investor relations. None of that. They've also got no, it says very specifically, no analysts who find market trends and X, Y, and Z thing. They don't have associates who go and try to find deals. It says that people just used to fax 
letters straight to Warren or Warren picks up the phone and says, you know, asks a few questions and very quickly decides if it's a deal worth doing or not. 19 people. Great. So let's talk about compensation structures because this is something that I'm super interested in. I think it's really important if uh, you're trying to, you know, run a business or you're trying to invest in a business, the compensation structures have to be right all up and down, whether, you know, from the CEO down to the, you know, uh, lowest level employees. So kind of what are your high level thoughts about incentives, compensation, bonuses? In the way that Berkshire does it or just generally? Let's start with Berkshire and then we'll go general. Yeah. So in, in the reading that we did, it wasn't too specific um, about the compensation, but what it made very clear was that uh, Berkshire has absolutely no problem incentivizing and compensating their executives, the people that run all the different companies that they own, they have no problem compensating them in really uh, rich ways. And, and what I mean by that is if there's a company that they're expecting to you know, profit a billion dollars in a year, they'll have no problem paying the CEO maybe a 50 million or a hundred million dollar bonus to hit that profit figure. For the CEO, it's huge incentive to stay and do a good job. It's a life-changing amount of money for them to receive. Yet in the grand scheme of how much profit is going to be rolled back up to Berkshire, we're talking about a, a couple percent percentage points here, right? So in Warren's mind, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, I'll give up 2% of the profits to this one guy or one girl, uh, one man, one woman, basically, um, to basically earn me, you know, a billion dollars that I can go put back to work. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. And so it's, he, makes, he makes it very clear, there's no problem paying out, you know, tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses uh, to these people um, to keep the incentives, right? Because the number one thing he talks about is, well, you go and you buy one of these companies and you buy it for a lot of money, you know, why wouldn't the CEO just run off with their 50 million or hundred million dollars? Why wouldn't they go, you know, live on an island somewhere for the rest of their life? He says, well, we need to really focus on retaining those CEOs uh, through incentive structures to make sure that they're not going to go anywhere and they're going to continue to you know, deliver the profits that Berkshire needs for years and decades to come. Yeah. And the other thing they mentioned is that he, you know, he feels it's crazy to grant stock options, which have a very volatile value to them. And also those managers that you were referencing to are compensated solely based on their units performance. So they're not being bonused based on the aggregate performance of Berkshire. So if, if their unit knocks out of the park, but Berkshire as a whole had a bad year because of, you know, their insurance business and this and that, you know, that's not going to negatively impact that person's compensation. So I think that makes sense. And the other, the other piece that's unique is so, so this is kind of a more complex topic or idea to understand, but it's, if you think about a company, let's say a public company and it's granting its CEO stock options and the company doesn't pay all of its free cash flow out in dividends. That means it has retained earnings every year and then it uses those retained earnings to invest back in the business to grow the business. So even if the CEO really does nothing good and just kind of retains the earnings and invests it at, you know, a 2% return on equity, 3% return on equity, those stock options are going to go up in value. So Warren felt that it didn't make any sense that compensation wasn't directly tied to capital employed. Right. So the managers would be compensated, not just based on the rate of growth, but also the capital that was needed to actually spur that growth. So that is something really interesting and something that I think in my own business as well with my property managers, because 
you know, we can't just say, oh, great. Well, you raised revenue, but what about expenses? So let's go back to float and insurance and all that. And your Rolex, the first business that Berkshire bought before they bought a stock, before they bought anything, the first thing they bought was an insurance business because of the float. Help explain why. Why did they buy an insurance business? Why was it? The, why? Why did? Why was the float so important? Why was that the best form of capital for them to go get? Yeah. So the insurance business is really interesting because the way that I used to think about insurance was, well, I'm paying the if I'm being insured, I'm paying the insurance company a premium, and they're making a bet, a diversified bet, because they're going to have many people that they insure that the premiums they collect are going to exceed the money that they pay out in claims, right? That's how you would think they would logically run their business, but that's actually not how they make money. It's really interesting that the way that insurance companies actually underwrite and determine what is an appropriate premium to charge is actually for them to end up having their costs be 110% of the income that they pull in, which doesn't really make sense. And that's also from Warren Buffett's really old letters. And so that may have changed structurally due to the reduction of interest rates over time. Maybe it's 105%. But the idea is they're willing to lose money on their main insurance business because it generates this float, which as we discussed before, float is the fact that people pay the insurance company premiums up front to then pay out claims in the future. So it essentially creates this money that they can do something with in the interim. And insurance companies, they typically invest it in the stock market, in real estate debt, and, and so forth to, to generate a positive return. So the way insurance companies actually profitable is the combination of, of both, making the you know, underwriting profits if they can, and then utilizing the float to create investment returns. And Warren recognized the fact that if I can generate float at an attractive cost of capital, maybe even turn a profit in the insurance business, that means I'm borrowing money at a negative rate and then able to invest it in the market and compound it through buying stocks like Coca-Cola, which, like you said, an enduring business has had the same mission since 1800s. Incredible. There's a, just to relate everything back to tech, of course, there's like a, there's a tech company that is uh, on fire right now. They're doing really, really well. Um, they just closed a, a massive series B at a $2 billion valuation. Some tier one investors came in like Chamath and Mark Benioff and Blackstone participated. And what it does, it, it actually, it sort of takes this idea of float in, in, in sort of a tangential way, right? And it, and it applies it to uh, the tech sector and, and software businesses specifically. Um, a lot of businesses, as you know, charge monthly recurring revenue, MRR. Um, so like you go and you sign up for Slack, they'll charge you, I don't know, $7 a month or Zoom, 15 bucks a month. And they charge all of their customers, you know, X dollars per month. Most customers just have, you know, a credit card plugged in every month that charges them. So, you know, Zoom charges you 15 bucks a month. Uh, by the end of the year, uh, the ARR, the annual recurring revenue is $180, right? Um, so every time someone signs up, they know that, you know, they'll make $180 from them that year. And maybe a small percentage of the of Zoom customers will churn, will basically cancel their subscription at the end of the year. So they can do this big equation and they sort of understand, okay, for all of our subscribers, you know, this is how much revenue we expect by the end of the year based on our churn, based on what our ARR would be for all these customers, right? Pipe is a company that basically came in and said, look, all these companies that are charging MRR, we're actually going to turn it into ARR for that company. So Slack, if everyone's paying monthly, Pipe will basically come and finance all the monthly subscribers on an annual basis and say, okay, well, here's all your money for the whole year. 
And um, it's, it's not like Berkshire where they're going to take that money and go invest it in stocks and stuff like that, but it gives them the working capital up front. So now they can invest in more hires, they can do more things for their business. And they basically created this financial tool to basically finance MRR because there's so much data and so many metrics available around churn, MRR, error, all these different things that kind of can plug into this equation. And they've really figured out a new financial tool and system for your startups, which is a huge sector financially. Right. And so that's why like a Blackstone went and invested in their series B because it's probably interesting to them to start looking at that at scale. Yeah. I mean, that, it's a really understandable business coming at it from multiple angles, right? At the, at the end of the day, it's a really simple finance business that's uh, financing accounts receivables, right? These companies are owed some, th- something in the future. This company's make, coming in and making a bet on actually those future receivables being collected and they are charging an appropriate interest rate that they believe that they're being compensated for their risk. And then, as you said, on the flip side, the company is saying, well, whatever interest rate we're paying for getting that cash up front, we can actually do more with the money now than the cost of that capital. That's right. That's exactly right. Very interesting. I did not know about that. Yeah. Pipe, check them out. I'm, I'm, I got exposure to the Series B. 